you know, in many ways, uh, going on a through hike is like throwing, throwing yourself into like the mental deep end because there's no one to save you from yourself. I mean, you're in your head all the time for hours every day. And sure, you're trying to avoid like snakes and trying like plucking ticks off of you, but you're also just going over your entire life and you never know what section of your life is going to hit you when. And sometimes it's really cathartic, but it can also be super scary. That was Rahawa Hale, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 118. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Can I take a quick minute to say some mushy thank you stuff? Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose life experiences and opinions might be different from your own. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people to find us. So thank you so much for taking a second and doing that. And thank you, of course, for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before. I have such a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I want to just take a second to explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple and powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. So if that's what you're looking for, sorry, I don't have all of the capital A answers. Um, As a recovering self-help junkie, I'm actually pretty over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too and that that's why you're here. So yeah, that's not what this show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that women's voices deserve to be heard, and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for new Real Talk Live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. 
And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Rahawa Hale. Rahawa is an Eritrean American writer, and in 2016, she threw hiked the Appalachian Trail. Her writing about that journey has been published in places such as Outside Online and BuzzFeed, and you can find her and all her work on Twitter and Instagram at Rahawa Hale. In this episode, Rahawa and I talk about writing and hiking, my two favorite things. She shares her writing process, why she loves short stories, and where you can find them if you want to read more short stories, as well as what she's currently working on with her writing this year. We talk about her thru-hike of the AT, what she hoped to get out of it, what it was like hiking as a queer Black woman, and who you should be following on social media if you care about diversifying the outdoors. I had the incredibly good fortune to meet Rahawa earlier this year when we both attended the same weekend-long writing retreat with a small group of badass, creative, outdoorsy women, and it was such a treat to get to have this conversation and to talk with her more deeply, and I really hope that you enjoy it too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Rahala, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I know. I feel like what when was our writing retreat at the coast a couple weeks ago now? I'm like, oh, I miss you already. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was uh, two and a half weeks ago. It was Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. So, uh, yeah, and I, I feel I feel spoiled. You know, on, on the one hand, I'm glad we started the year by having this retreat with all of these amazing outdoorsy women, and hikers and activists and podcasters and et cetera. Uh, but on the other hand, what the hell am I supposed to do with the rest of the year? Like, I want, <laughs> yeah. I want to be surrounded by these people all the time. And, um, and unfortunately, we all don't live next to one another. I know. So. I was thinking that um, I had sort of an off week with writing last week in that I did not write at all because reasons and also just because sometimes that happens. And so I was getting back into it yesterday and it was such a struggle. And I was thinking about when we were sitting at um, the table <laughs> on the writing retreat and you were just like oh, available for giving pep talks and tough love. And I was like, oh my God, can you just come and write with me all the time? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's what Instagram messages are for. <laughs> I guess so. Um, so drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first hour of your day today. The first hour of my day. Uh, yes. So I woke. I, so I've been suffering from insomnia since, uh, for I guess, most of 2017. Um, and it was gone for a while. I'd cut out, well, I, I'd cut out uh, alcohol and um, caffeine. And it seemed to have helped for a few months in October and November and most of December. Uh, but then I visited family and there was, there was a bunch of food and drinks and uh, my sleep hasn't been great um, since the start of this new year. But for the past two days, I've slept through the night. And so I woke up with a ton of energy and, and uh, did very basic things like brushing my teeth and making scrambled eggs and feeding my cat and cleaning her litter box um, and responding to emails. And um, I am a journalist, so I tend to pitch people um, once every few weeks, depending on how big of an assignment and how timely it is. Um, and so that was what this morning was for. And now I'm here with you. 
I like it. I always like knowing what people do first thing in the morning. I'm like, I'm such a voyeur stick. Like I'm so curious how people spend their real lives. So I, yeah, I will add that. So I'm, I am really a morning person when I sleep through the night, obviously it's hard to do anything or commit to any schedule when you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're awake for three hours. But if I manage to sleep through the night, I tend to wake up at around six and do some kind of exercise stuff in the morning. Um, of course, this is the version of my best self that I, I only aspire to. <laughs> but um, I like to wake up, maybe go to the gym, um, just perhaps even put the treadmill on a high incline and walk for an hour, um, and then come back home and do what I described before. Mm. But yeah, no, that was not today. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I am. I feel like I'm constantly searching for what my best morning routine is. Right? Yeah, wait, what is your morning routine? What I mean, do you do? Well, I'm significantly off whatever my normal routine would be this week. My um, So my husband, Paul, works for Twitter, but he works remotely. Um, so he usually has to go to the office one week every quarter-ish, and that's this week. And so um, typically he gets up earlier than me and feeds the cats and like takes care of stuff. So when he's out of town, the cats like freak out. Where's our other human who's going to feed us? <laughs> so um, what did I do this morning? I woke up. I fed the cats. Um, I read a ton. Reading's basically my favorite activity. It's how I usually bookend my day. You're you're a morning reader. That's amazing. I'm an evening reader. I'm an anytime I can reader basically. Uh, um but I so see. I was recently rereading. I've been reading a lot of serious stuff and so I needed to throw something light in there so I downloaded oh. one of my um favorite sort of trashy, but really good male, male erotica novels. Ooh, tell <laughs> yeah. me more. Oh my God. I have a book list on my website. I can send you some recommendations. Um, okay. So I read this morning and then, um, what did I do? I went to the grocery store. I'm having a couple of girlfriends over tonight to eat chili and biscuits and watch magic Mike XXL. <laughs> Sounds like a theme what? of my day. What is this life of yours? <laughs> I don't okay. know. None of them, none of them have ever seen it. And I'm like, no, you guys, it's so much better than the first one you have to. So oh, I'm like, yeah. Well, Paul's gone, and that's not something he would be interested in ever. So I'm taking advantage. I'm going to make some chili. So I went to the grocery store. Um, what else did I do this morning? I went on a little walk, and now I get to talk to you. So, yeah. What are what are some of the serious books that you've been reading? Serious books that I've been reading. Um, it's funny now that you asked me that, my mind went completely blank because I'm always reading like six books at a time. Um, yeah. I am finally, I was on the wait list at the library for a million years for Hillary Clinton's book. And then I put that off forever because I'm like, I don't think I can handle reading this. Um, yeah. So I'm reading that. <laughs> um, let's see, what else? Um, I read um, The New Jim Crow. Oh man! That. Okay, um, I feel like I, I, sh- I feel like taking just like lying down after hearing you say that. That is a wonderful, incredible book. But wow. yeah, yeah. Um, so things of that genre, I guess I'd say. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I'm like, you know what? It's time for some erotica. <laughs> Let's yep. Do that. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So speaking of reading, actually, are is there anything that you've read lately that you're like, oh, everyone has to read this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've gotten some like uh, some galleys, some like um, pre-release books, uh, and one of them is by a woman named Michelle Dean, and she has this book called Sharp, um, which is a collection of essays on many um, women critics, primarily throughout the 20th century, um, and what kind of what unifies them and what where there's a common ground and what makes them so extraordinary. And I've never read a book that's kind of like as all encompassing as hers. And she writes so well about these extraordinary women that I, I'm, I honestly can't wait until it's out. It comes out in April 
anyone can pre-order it now. It's called Sharp. The author is Michelle Dean. I just can't say enough good things about it. So, mm. all right, I'll yeah. add that to my very long list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the first thing that I would love to talk about is writing. So obviously that's how I first found you. It was through your writing. Um, do you remember the first completed piece that you ever wrote? Like, do you remember when writing started for you? Uh, it was probably an aim away message. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I remember, uh, I mean, I've, I feel like ever since I was a kid, I, I wrote stories um, and I always loved writing. Uh, and I remember in fifth grade, I had, some 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 story about this duck I don't know it was a really dumb story but I remember it and then I I think like in sixth grade we had we had uh, some American history project and I wrote like a rap about the Emancipation Proclamation (laughs) 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 Um, that I still remember which is (laughs) which is really weird but I feel like I've I've always been writing um I like to fiddle um with a few instruments and write silly songs I love to write stories I I once wrote um, a, a short film called You Had a Stomach, But I Had a Knife. Um, <laughs> it was a stupid little horror thing. But, um, you know, I, I came to, to writing words fairly recently. Um, I, 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 I think my first published piece was in 2012. Um, and, uh, and it was, what was it for? I think... I think I wrote for um, The All. I wrote a piece for The All about action movies, um, maybe in 2011. And um, a a website called Volume One Brooklyn was the first website to publish my fiction. Um, And yeah, yeah, those were, I think, two of my first pieces. Of everything that you have written and published over the years, do you have a favorite? Like if someone's new to your work, is there something that you think, oh, they should read this first? Oh, man. Okay, so I have a short story called The Lives and Loves of Intricate Cakes. Oh, my God. That's the best title. Okay, I haven't read that. (laughs) That's um, if you on on the fiction side. Because, listen, if I can do anything with my time, if I do absolutely anything with my time and not have to worry about any responsibilities, I would be writing short stories. I love short stories pretty much more than any other format, writing format. Um, And so I haven't had a chance to write them often, um, especially since 2015, I'm trying to write more of them this year, but I would suggest starting with that short story if you want to read some fiction. And if you want to read some nonfiction, um, I also, I write about the outdoors and I write about uh, culture, especially film, music, books. Um, And I write about, um, well, specifically, I've I've written about the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean um, over the past five years. So you can read my outside piece, um, Going It Alone. Um, and then you could also read a piece I wrote for Pacific Standard about the slave trade in Libya. So I think those are three of my strongest works. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, yeah, the first one you mentioned is the only one that I haven't read, but now I'm excited. I'm like, ooh, I don't, actually, I don't think I've read any of your fiction. So. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I, I used to be way more open about it. And when I lived in Brooklyn, I'd... I'd perform readings and was, was, was far more active. But, um, since I haven't really published any recently, um, I don't think I've had a reason to, to promote that, that side of things, but hopefully that will change. 
So it sounds like you've been interested in writing in this sort of creative work for, I mean, basically forever. I'm curious how your family factored into your ambitions to become a writer. Like, what do you feel like the people and forces were that shaped your work? Oh, wait. So (laughs) I feel feel like these are two different questions. Do you want me to answer about my family or the people? Yeah, yeah. If they're different. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they are. Um, So when I was growing up, I I wasn't, my dream wasn't of being a writer. When I was growing up, I was convinced that I was going to be an astrophysicist. And so (laughs) I spent my entire childhood and I pretty much since from like, since learning to read um, up until I was about 21, pursuing math and science. I mean, so I always wrote little stories and loved loved writing, but my my main passion was numbers. And um, it wasn't until I changed my major um, from astrophysics to writing pretty late that I that <laughs> that I uh, that my family actually started to pay attention to, to my work. Most of my family members don't actually read my writing, uh, which I think is a blessing because a lot of it is is pretty personal mm-hmm. um yeah family's family's hard that way yeah I, I, I family's family, hard yes <laughs> understatement of the year yeah I, I also don't think they understand um what constitutes an accomplishment I was I saw my family this uh this 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 Christmas this past Christmas and um I was speaking to an uncle from Toronto who was like so you're a writer what does that even mean like I I write and I'm like okay yeah no I I am a journalist and I pitch places and then they pay me to write about stuff. And he's like, well, where have you written? And I'm like, I've written for the Atlantic. I've written for the guardian. I've written for the New York times. I've written for the New Yorker, which if I said this to most people, they'd be like, Oh, you're a writer. And my uncle was like, huh? Okay. I guess that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, so I think, I think they're happy that I don't ask for money and they're just going to, I think they're, they're willing to leave me to my own devices. Um, yeah. for the time it, it's being. funny when you do something that no, maybe not that your family doesn't understand, but I mean, I certainly have that given sort of the different iterations of having worked online for so long. And now, especially right, right. with this, my pod, my parents like don't really understand what a podcast is. They don't listen mm-hmm. to it, that, which again, <laughs> to your point is sometimes a blessing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely funny. They're like, well, she seems like she's doing okay. She seems like she's happy. So I guess it's fine, but yeah, they don't really get it. Yeah. I told my mom to go, ch- to go pick up a com- copy of the Sunday New York times recently so that she could see my piece in the, in the New York Times magazine. And she did. And she's like, okay, that was okay. And I'm like, what? What? I'm in the Times. You're like, this yeah. is a huge deal. It's funny. Yeah. Um, but it also, it's also like, if this doesn't impress you, my goodness. Nothing, right. Much, right. Nothing, That's it. I quit. Nothing. I'm done. Um, yeah. So you said that the change to focusing on writing came later. What led to that change? Because that does seem like a, a pretty sharp left turn. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think at freshman year, I was always taking writing classes. I was always taking creative writing classes, even while I was pursuing astrophysics. Um, and the change happened, one, because I was really depressed and anxious and didn't have the words for that. We, I didn't grow up talking about mental health. I didn't really have many people. I feel like if I'd gone to school 10 years later, that, <laughs> then I would have seen a, a therapist and either gotten some medication or at least started talking to someone and working through some of these issues, but I felt completely overwhelmed. Um, and, uh, another thing that added to it was that I started to speak to, um, people who graduated women specifically who graduated and, and, uh, pursued doctorates or master's degrees or whatever. And this was around 2006. And 
the academic market was just horrifying, right? I mean, it's gotten much, much worse. But I found that I, I couldn't see past a life in academia. I didn't have a, a mentor or a, a woman to tell me, um, hey, listen, just finish this degree and you'll figure out what you want to do with it after. It's not like you have to be a professor. Um, and the life, the life in academia just seemed so awful to me, like having to move to the middle of nowhere, anywhere where you could actually get funding and being one of very few women, but also one of almost zero, like one of maybe 10 black people in the field. Um, and it felt very isolating. I mean, I never had a single black peer as during my time as uh, in, in physics or in astronomy. And the nature of, of these courses is that, you know, the people you start with are pretty much the people who are with you the whole way through. Um, and the more I started to understand about my identity and what it meant for me um, in this world, uh, the less enticing a life spent feeling that alone seemed. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Uh, and I mean, I regret it. I regret not finishing my degree. I really wish I had, but I also think I did the right thing for me. And I, I think I'm, I'm doing okay. And I think I make a far better writer than I ever would have an astrophysicist. Yeah. It's interesting when we look back on, you know, when you just said you regret that it's like, we do the best that we can at the time, right? Like with whatever skills and coping mechanisms and information that we have. And it's funny how different some of those choices seem once you look back from a different place. Right, right, right. And I, I can't even, I don't even know how much I regret not finishing it. So that degree so that I could pursue it as a career, but just because I feel like I robbed myself of so many opportunities that would have led to the stability that even if I chose not to pursue uh, the sciences, I, I could have, I could have just experienced a little bit more comfort and security um, than I did as somebody who entered the workforce at at the start of the recession with an English degree from a state university. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, the question that I asked before about sort of what you feel like has shaped your work, and you said those are two separate questions. Um, I'd love to talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah, so obviously many great writers. Um, there's There are a few things that I feel impact me as much as a good book. I've always, as I said, I've always loved reading and writing. I've always taken... Um, many English courses, um, through school. Um, but I, I always, ever since I was a kid, you know, I I felt like reading was the cheapest way of traveling, you know, especially when you're stuck out in the suburbs without a car and, 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 um, and you're looking for a connection. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the short answer is I always found freedom through books. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, yeah, reading's my favorite activity. <laughs> right, right, right. Sometimes the, the the amount of stress that I feel that I'll never be able to read all the things that I want to read. <laughs> it's like and, and, and especially now, I, yes, and especially now, I just feel like reading is one of the most, um, one of the things I can do exclusively for myself and with myself that where I can just create a little universe, you know, create this little bubble where it's not participatory, it's not communal, like watching a film or attending a concert might be. It's just me and this book. And that's kind of magical to me, especially um, since my time goes to so many places these days. And I often forget to make time for myself. 
Yeah, I feel the same way. And I love too that there's just so many, this is going to sound so silly, but there's so many different kinds of books. You could enter into so many different worlds and there's like no shortage of things to learn about. And I feel like it's the one of the best ways, at least initially, to get perspective to people's lived experiences who you might, for any number of reasons, never come in contact with on a day-to-day basis. Yes, yes, yes. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember the first, I read so much poetry when I was a kid, um, just because it, I mean, obviously because it was so amusing, it was so moving, and also because um, it was so musical for the most part. Um, and I, I find myself, I, I, I stopped, I stopped at some point, and I've recently started to examine why. And um, I, I think that it's because poetry became, I, I think there was a certain level of imposter syndrome. I, it's like I forgot how to enjoy poetry hmm. um, without the pressure of, 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 uh, under understanding all of the illusions that were being made. Um, but when I was a kid, I really loved it. And I, I would like to start reading and perhaps even writing some more poetry, um, going forward. Yeah. I it's funny that you bring that up. I've been thinking about that recently too. I did, I was a creative writing minor in college and I took a bunch of poetry classes and for some reason, yeah, it's become something now where I'm like, I don't understand that. It's not the, you know, I, I don't know what my sort of disconnect is, but um, maybe that was just the nudge that I needed to go back to reading poetry. So thanks for that. Yeah. 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 Um, tell me about your short story of the day project on Twitter. Oh yeah. So um, <laughs> 2015 was a rough year. There've been a few rough years. 2015 was a rough year. I was um, in a relationship that was falling apart. I was planning to hike the Appalachian trail um, the following year. I was trying to figure out those, logistics and also learn all the skills that people that many people learn over a lifetime of having family members who are outdoorsy or boy scouts or whatever i was trying to cram into one year of mostly online learning i was trying to get all of my gear i was trying to find deals there was a lot happening in 2015 i was working a full-time job that absolutely wrecked me i mean i don't think if you're a creative the last thing you need to do is stare at any any is to stare at any major city's real estate market for a living so I don't recommend it. Um, but yeah, and so I knew that I couldn't, that I wouldn't have time to write. I would barely have, I mean, I barely had time to shower. Um, and so one of the things that I, I still wanted to participate in the literary community, community, and I asked myself what that would look like. Um, and I, and the answer I came up with is I wanted to start a project on Twitter called Short Story of the Day, where I would highlight one short story by anyone who wasn't a white man. That, that was the only goal. As long as you weren't a white man and you wrote an amazing story, I would try to feature you. And over the course of a year, I created an anthology of exceptional writing by mostly marginalized people. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it was the one thing to keep me grounded. And that kept me grounded and that, that made me feel like I wasn't totally lost because it's hard to be a writer who doesn't write. I mean, imposter, <laughs> imposter syndrome is bad when you're writing. But imposters, but when you're not writing, oh my goodness. Drag me. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> That's, that reminds me of our, our, our conversation, um, on the retreat when I was saying that I feel like the only thing more painful than writing is not writing. And you were like, yeah, writing's a more productive way of hating yourself. And I was like, oh man, you see true. my soul. It's true. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's why I started, I started that project because I wanted to give back because I mean, the. The, the shelves in bookstores just looked so painfully white and homogenous and male. And I, I was over it. I mean, I was fed up and I also wanted, wanted to, um, 
bring these voices to a broader audience. Um, because many of them weren't really on Twitter, they didn't really have social media profiles, um, or they were at like tiny universities and nobody had really heard of them. And you know, it's so funny, I, I say that I did this project because I didn't have the time to write. Um, and that's true, I didn't have the time to write because writing takes a lot out of me. But it took so much time scouring through like literary journals and websites and old books and I mean, you know, uh, I'm glad I did it though, and mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's actually how I found my agent. Yay! <laughs> there you go. One of the things that I love about what you said was this idea of asking yourself, okay, well, if I'm not writing, then how can I still contribute to the literary community? I feel like, I mean, that question obviously is specific, like you said, to the literary community, but that could be true in so many different things of just like objectively stepping back and being like, how can I still contribute, even if it's not in this, you know, one way that I usually do or the one way that people are expected to? I think, I don't know, I think that's a really cool question of like how you can contribute by amplifying other people's voices, lifting other people up, pointing people in the direction of work that maybe they wouldn't have seen, that there's so many different ways to be of service in whatever community you belong to, even if it's not through directly creating your own work. Obviously, you can't buy every book, right? You can't buy every book that you want to buy or you'd be broke. And perhaps some people can, but most people can't. And so how do you support the authors you admire, right? It, it's not only buy their book, although obviously, please buy their books. But that's, there's so many other things you can do. You can leave reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. You can request their book at a library or bookstore. And I, I, I feel like, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be for you necessarily, but I feel like there are so many ways for people to show their support that we don't emphasize. And I think that leaves people very few options where it's like either I can participate in this one way or I guess I'm going to feel bad about not being able to participate. Yeah. And I'm really trying to, 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 to broaden that as much as possible. Yeah. Know? I love that. This might sound like a really silly question, but since short stories are, it's funny, something that I love, but something that I really don't read very often, the question that yeah. comes to my mind is, where do you find short stories? Which like, sounds stupid maybe, so, but do you have like any recommendations? Well, one of the things about short stories is they generally don't sell. Some of them do. Some, some of them sell very well. And especially if you're a big name like Juno Diaz or George Saunders, you can get a short story published and perhaps it will sell very well. But when it comes to publishing, short stories aren't short story collections aren't exactly high performers. Um, but so for me, I I mean I try to support short story authors because obviously that's that's my love. Um, but I find them I find them in the library. I find um, literary journals. There are so many literary journals. All of them, all of them publish at least one short story. There are ones that publish many short stories. Um, many of them you can also find in your library. Um, so it's, it's not like you just have to go. If you if you see a short story and you're like, I really like this. I want to read more by this person. Of course, you can go to the library and ch and see what sh where, where the collection is and check that out. But another thing you can do is see where that per person, what magazines that person is published in, what literary magazines. Because chances are they have more stories that are in that vein, um, if not exactly about the same topic. Um, so like... That's that's something that I would do. There are so many online online um, literary magazines. Um, there are the main many of the the main literary websites have short stories on them. Of course, like The New Yorker or like Electric Literature has recommended reading. If you like short stories, there are places to find them. But I will add that if you look through my short story of the day, I think I storified it. 
I don't even know if Storify is still a thing, but I think I Storified all of these tweets. And you can scroll through them and see links to the different places where I found my, the, the short stories I, I highlighted. Okay, yeah, that's awesome. Um, tell me what you're working on right now with your writing. What's important to you as far as writing goes this year? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I kind of burned out a little bit last year. I wrote so much um, for me. And I, I wrote, of course, about my Appalachian Trail through hike, but I wrote as, as, as well about culture, as I said, um, and uh, so many really heavy things that I'm trying to work on more short stories that perhaps won't see the light of day for a, a little while, but um, that will help bring about some sort of like mental calm. <laughs> I, it's, it's hard for me not to feel responsible as somebody with a platform for, 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 for writing the tough stories, um, for writing the stories that either other people will write poorly or that won't get written at all. And sometimes I know that's not all on me. I know that's, uh, that's, that's not something that anyone has placed exclusively on my shoulders, but it's still something that I, I struggle with. Um, there's this woman named Porsche Kapoor, um, and she's a, she's a writer. She has a book coming out soon, actually, called Lyme. And it's about her um, history with late-stage Lyme disease, which, you know, affects so many people. I, I, know, I, know, I know, especially on the East Coast, hikers, of course, worry about Lyme. But the number, I mean, there's, it goes so far beyond the hiking community. I, I, would, I would recommend checking out that book, too, um, to your listeners. But she has the reason I bring up poor Chisa Kapoor is because she has this essay um, about being Iranian American and having this feeling this responsibility to write about her people all the time um, because no one else will in a balanced way. And I it really resonated with me. Um, and I spent a lot of 2017 trying to do that, trying to write about Eritreans, trying to write about Africa and I, I'm not stopping. I'm, I'm still going to do that. I just need to find balance or else I'm going to be sad all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Which in the end doesn't serve you and doesn't serve anybody else. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, um, yeah. so yeah, so I'll be writing short stories. Um, I've got a few things going on. Perhaps we shall see, um, some, some features I'm, I'm trying to work on, but nothing I, Nothing is set in stone yet. Mm-hmm. So. It's funny that you mentioned Prochista. You and I were first um, introduced through Esme, who's been on the show. Oh, yeah. And um, she uh, made the made that introduction, too. And um, Prochista is going to be on the show in a couple months. So later, Yay! I think, in the summer. So, yeah, funny. Um, tell me about your writing process. What does a day in the life of Rahawa the writer look like? Oh, it's so unprofessional. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I know. People think that I wake up. And I like brew an entire pot of super fancy tea that costs more than my rent. And then I sit down at my typewriter from like 1956 and I have like a pipe or something. I don't, I, I am a terrible writer. I, I have, I'm, I'm an accumulative writer. I very rarely sit down in front of a document and then just blast out several thousand words, which I saw you do during our weekend and which I'm still just completely awed by. Um, I tend to, write thoughts, write down some thoughts, um, throughout the course of several months. Um, and then at some point start to compile them and start to group them into, into paragraphs. And then 
start to expand on them. And that's how most of my pieces start. I mean, I wrote down, I wrote down, um, what am I trying to say? Oh, my outside piece started as a collection of notes on the iPhone notes app that I took while I threw hiked. People think I sat down and wrote this piece and like it just happened. But no, it was something that I spent six months thinking about and six months really trying to to um, to imagine, you know, to imagine what what a reader's experience would be like um, and how to present these thoughts. Um, so it's it's so weird because I very rarely just sit down and unless it's like a timely piece or something where that's I'm completely removed from, it's very rare for me to just sit down and like actually be able to write something from start to finish. Um, I I am <laughs> I am somebody who is a sentence by sentence writer. I'm trying to change that. Um, I know we had a talk about this before about like what's called like horizontal writing versus vertical writing, which is like people who do draft after draft after draft and then several drafts later, they have a finished piece versus people who try to go sentence by sentence and it takes a long time, but by the time they get to the end of it, they feel really good about where they are with their story. It's not like they have to do many draft revisions after that. Um, and a writer I admire named Lauren Groff kind of had this, this um, interview where she talked about diagonal writing um, to try to kind of avoid the pitfalls of both styles that I just described. And with her, what she considers diagonal writing is writing a first draft very quickly. Um, and then after that, going sentence by sentence. Because what she says is that once you get that first draft down, you know what will stick. You don't have to, you know, you know what will stick and you know what, will, um, what isn't really working. So you don't have to spend hours or days trying to make something that isn't working sound right or seem right to you. And I'm really trying to, to stick to that <laughs> going forward. Yeah, I'm so fascinated. The same way that I'm interested in other people's morning routines, I as I'm getting more serious about writing this year, I'm so interested in other people's writing process. And I, I love hearing the truth of what does and doesn't work for people because it's a good reminder that no one process works for everyone. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah. true. Oh, tell me about your process. I mean, my I'm like so new to trying to do regular... Well, I guess it depends what you define as regular. I... You know, I blogged for like eight years and I've, I'm really consistent with weekly writing, whether that's the Friday emails that I send to my community, you know, or just anything like that. Um, but this sort of trying to, I feel like I'm so conditioned into the short form writing for the internet, right? Things that are like 800 to 1500 words as a completed thing that right. goes out relatively quickly. Um, you know, I certainly don't have your experience of, you know, being published by other publications, that type of stuff. It's something I would love to do. But right now I'm working on basically writing about my Arizona trail hike. Uh, originally I thought it was going to be a book. Now I'm thinking I might put it on my hiking blog. I'm not really sure where it's going to end up, but just the process of sort of working on something that's not going to be published in two days, right, is, has been right. interesting. Like I, I'm realizing how conditioned I am into sort of the instant gratification of this is done and then people get to read it and then I get feedback. Having to sort of sit with something myself um, is really uncomfortable, which I guess is, is, is good. But the, the fact that 
I'm writing about something that's not research-based, that's solely my experience. And right now, since I'm in sort of the terrible first draft stage, or at least trying to tell myself that it's okay if the first draft is terrible, that I am trying to just sit down and write thousands of words at a time because it really is just, this is what happened, right? Like day 13, this, 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 this. Day 14, this, this, that like, you know. So in that regard, I feel like it's easier to do, you know, 2,000 words at a time. Yes. But, uh, but I mean, like, that's, I mean, I think that's half of the battle is, is having a certain level of forgiveness when it comes to your first draft being bad. Like, I think that's so many to be celebrated. Also, living like fear of producing writing that isn't necessarily up to their standards, you know? And I think it's important for people to let go of that fear. I mean, whatever, whatever writing process works for someone is, is theirs. And I'm not saying anyone shouldn't write a certain way, but if fear is one of the things that keeps you from, from being able to put down a draft, then I, th- I think it's something that you sh- one, one can address. And I don't know, I think it's an opportunity um, to be kinder to yourself. Yeah, I think so too. I, when I first started getting into this, I asked our friend Carrot for sort of writing advice, specifically writing about hiking. And one of the things that she was sharing from when she was writing her first book is, you know, once I think it was maybe the second draft and she gave it to a couple of people and basically said, highlight anything that's boring or anything that, you know, like at some point you start to get other people's opinions. And I thought that that was such a good, simple, like here, highlight anything where you like lose interest, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it- I, I might wind up doing that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, especially like I know many of my editors, one of the things I ask them to do, and some of them do this just because they're good editors, is I ask them to read and and to mark the moment where they lose it, they, lo- they lose interest, where they find themselves, their minds wandering. And that's always interesting because it, it happens in places I would never expect it. And sometimes it's because of the subject, but sometimes it's also because of how it's presented or when it's presented. And so like I, I highly recommend people, people, if you're trying to write, to ask that of, of your, of your readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about that too, with even with this project, even if it is just something that I wind up putting on my hiking blog and it does, it is just sort of a chronological day by day. Here's what happened. I still want it to be good writing. And I was thinking that it might be a worthwhile investment to hire an editor or just like to go through that process. Cause that's something that I've never done before. Yeah. 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 I do want to move away from this, like just on your blog. I don't really believe in the, in the just on your blog. Um, approach. I, I I think if you're writing about this incredible experience, it's your first through hike, right? Um, I did the Oregon section of the PCT the year before, but so sort of and sort of not, I guess. Okay, but you were alone. It's it's fairly empty. I mean, it was really hard. I, I try to get people to also stop saying. I don't. I, I think. On the Appalachian Trail, I would run into section hikers who were like, I'm only doing 700 miles. I'm like, it's 700 miles. Totally. <laughs> yeah. No, that resonates with me a lot. I think what I meant by that, it's not like, oh, it's just going to be on my blog, so therefore it's not important. But there is a difference, you know, if you're hiring an editor for, for let's say, you're going to self-publish a book, right? Like what yeah. Carrot did. And there is going to be sort of a financial end game there that I think sure. it's more difficult to justify making a financial investment in something that isn't going to have a 
financial outcome. So if I do put it on my blog, that's not going to be something that I earn money from. So it's like, then I would really be doing it for the experience of, you know, bettering the craft and seeing what it's like to work with an editor. And I think that's more what I meant. Not that I don't think that I think blogs are awesome. And so much of the writing that I love comes online. It's just, it's kind of like when you're in the situation, I feel similarly about being self-employed that if you don't have, you know, the structure of, you know, my husband has 360 reviews and performance reviews with his boss. You know, if you don't have that, if you don't have sort of that clear mentorship track or someone that's really working with you on your work, you really have to create that for yourself. And then it's the decision-making process of what am I willing to invest in financially when there isn't unlimited money? Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yes. Yes. Um, I also, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to like encourage you. No, no, no. I, I, I appreciate that. Totally. No, I, I love both. And, but I think, I think that your point is really valid because the words that we use to describe ourselves and our own work, it really is easy to be almost like subconsciously self-deprecating. I think that we yes. don't realize, I mean, words matter, you know, if, oh, I'm just this, or I'm just this, that, you know, saying that over time sort of does lead to feeling less confident about what you're doing. So no, your point is very welcome. <laughs> but also, I mean, we can, we can branch this out, right? When people say, oh, I'm, I'm not a hiker. I'm just somebody who hikes every other weekend, right? Like, what are they saying? <laughs> well, I think that there's this sort of cultural obsession with the extremes of things, you know, hiking yes. a, you know, one of the 2000 plus mile trails, having a book published by one of the big publishing houses, right? Getting mm-hmm. paid X amount that it's, it's easy to think that the only thing that counts, whatever that means are the really extreme things. And yes. you're, if you're going on, you know, three mile day hikes right, or whatever, like you're a hiker, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and that's, that's something that <laughs> I've had so many interviews, radio podcasts, interviews, um, where people ask me to talk about through hiking and, and how amazing through hiking is. And yes, through hiking is amazing. It also isn't the end all be all, you know? And I, I, I think very few people are potential through hikers, but I think way more people are potential hike, just regular hikers or people who find themselves outdoors more often than they do right now. And I, I'm, I'm more interested in, in really talking to them and just encouraging people to, try something that they're a little nervous to try and, you know, and to see if it's something that they love and to see if it's something that frees them. Yeah, I agree. So yes. Okay. So let's talk about hiking. Um, oh, when, yeah. once you decided to hike the AT, who's the first person that you told? Uh, who is the first person? You know, it's so funny. It, I feel like I talked, <laughs> I think it was a gradual process, this decision to hike the AT. I remember I had, I had a tweet in 2014 that said something like, through hiking blogs have replaced short story collections uh, and the things, you know, one of the things that I read the most over the course of a week, you know, I have no idea how these people do it. Right. I mean, that was, that was one of my earliest moments. I remember following a man maybe in 2015 or 2014, I think 2014. And his name was Thin Mint. And he had this very simple blog. I think it was like thinmindhikes.wordpress or something like that. And he's this older dude. And he had, he had very basic updates. It wasn't particularly compelling, but sometimes he would just bust out this poetry, unintentional poetry that I found really moving. And it felt really good to start cheering for these people and to start seeing their struggles and to kind of start seeing my struggles reflected in theirs as well. So, I mean, I remember talking to people about through hiking. I remember going on my first like hike, proper hike, climbing my first proper mountain. And 
I think it was after climbing, I think it was while climbing that mountain, Bear Mountain in New York, where I was like, yeah, someday I really do want to hike from Georgia to Maine and follow these blazes the whole way. And then um, I think perhaps the first time I told somebody, the first, the, I might have told my best friend, I definitely told my, my, my ex-boyfriend my boyfriend at the time, um, but one of the first people I told is this man named Douglas after um, New York Comic Con in 2014, so October 2014, and we were sitting by the water um, in Dumbo in Brooklyn, and and I said, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this thing, hear me out, it involves a lot of walking, but just, just, just hear me out, and he was so encouraging. And most of my friends were, were very encouraging. Um, I only told my mother um, sometime in 2015, late 2015, that I was going to leave for six months. And she was not having it. She was not interested in, in my hike at all. She thought I was out of my mind. She thought I was going on a suicide mission. Um, but she eventually came around. Yeah, the parental reaction. <laughs> my mother was also not thrilled. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's hard for it's hard for them to understand. I think, especially if it's not something that they grew up doing, um, you know, or that's something that they, they that they really that they're that they're very familiar with. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's pretty clear that this wasn't an, an impulse decision for you. You thought about it for a while. You did a ton of research. What were you hoping to get out of the hike? What was your main motivation going into it? You know that Rihanna lyric of like, "When I look outside my window, I can't get no peace of mind." It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. I spent so much of 2015 just going out of my mind. I wanted, well, one, I, I, was, I was really depressed and I was very anxious. And I really hoped that feeling present in my body um, would help me feel a little bit more present in my mind. And it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, I'm curious about that. What was your experience mental health wise while on the trail? Well, first things first, you know, this, this, the trail is, is steepest at its two terminuses. So, I mean, I showed up so unprepared, um, physically, physically, I hadn't, I prepared in so many other ways, but I just couldn't get my exercise together. Um, so I showed up in Georgia and it was just hard. It was, it was not fun at first. The way that running isn't fun at first. You know how like those first few weeks, you're just like, oh my goodness, this, this sucks. I'm out of breath. But then maybe a f- four weeks in, you're like, I could barely run for a minute before. And now I can run for 10 minutes straight, mm-hmm. you know? So I- I'll be honest, the first month, I, I mean, I was like, what have I done? What, what am I doing here? My feet are in agony. I'm not, a, I'm a very slow hiker. I'm a very nervous hiker. I don't take big steps. I don't have, I don't trust my footing. Um, I don't think I'd extended my, my trekking poles long enough on the downhills. So like, I was leaning over too much and I was really shaky. Um, you know, so my mental health wasn't great because I, I was in the space that I thought and really hoped would helped me feel better. And I was feeling worse than ever. Hmm. And not just mentally, but physically. And don't get me wrong, I was meeting so many people and having so many incredible experiences. Um, but I was unsure of myself. I will never forget standing in, which hostel is it? Oh, it's called Top of Georgia Hostel. It's, you, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice hostel. It's pretty cheap. They've got bunks. You have a ride into town. Um, there's like, it's, it's a nice space. Um, and I remember sitting there 
feeling so accomplished because top of Georgia, I was, you know, a few miles later, you'd cross your first state border. And it shows you, he had this, this guy had this map on his wall of the entire Appalachian Trail, and he showed you how far you'd come. And I have never seen a sadder inch anywhere. <laughs> I've, I mean, like, it was pathetic. I thought, oh, my goodness, I've, I've given it my all. I've barely made it. And this is as far as I've made it? This little bit of the map? <laughs> how in the world am I going to get the rest of the way? So, you know, that was very hard to struggle with. But, you know, the stronger I got and the more people that I met, um, the, better, the better I felt. Um, and it's, it's hard because you have so much. I mean, I had so much stuff to process out there. You know, in many ways, it, going on a through hike is like throwing, throwing yourself into like the mental deep end. Because there's no one to save you from yourself. I mean, you're in your head all the time for hours every day. And sure, you're trying to avoid like snakes and trying and like plucking ticks off of you. But you're also just going over your entire life. And you never know what section of your life is going to hit you when. And sometimes it's really cathartic, but it can also be super scary. Yeah, that's, I can't tell you how relatable that is to me. <laughs> like, that's just, yeah, the sort of, can you deal with yourself, you know, 101, basically, yes. <laughs> like what the hiking is. Yeah. The mental health thing, though, was a real surprise because, you know, I have had my own share of experiences um, with depression, somewhat with anxiety, but more so with depression. And, um, even though the hiking that I have done has been for sure the hardest and loneliest times of my life. And I was miserable. A lot of it mental health wise, it's the most sort of stable. I feel like that I've ever been. And I think a lot of it has to do with what you initially said of this idea of being really present in your body, in your surroundings, in your experience. And I find that the challenge of through hiking, it almost gives my whatever part of my brain succumbs to depression, something else to do that there's just no time to be depressed because I'm like, well, I have to find water. I have to do this. I have to, um, that I think that's one of the things that keeps me wanting to go back to long distance hiking was that I'm like, well, <laughs> a lot of things might suck, but at least I'm not going to be depressed. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. I mean, I, I, I think that's a huge draw for, for many people. I mean, and I've said this, I think it's just like something that I've, I've said so many times to, to almost everyone I've talked to is, you know, when I, I ask people all the time, what brought you to the trail? What, what, why are you out here? And the number one response I always got was to heal. I mean, people were really struggling. People, I mean, again, some people, of course, looking for adventure, looking for a good time. Not everyone. I don't want to give the impression that any, you know, everyone who threw hikes is a broken shell of a person. But there are many people who are, who are struggling with whatever demons they had. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence, you know? And I, I think it goes far deeper than just endorphins are good. You move, endorphins good. You know, mm -hmm. like, like I, I think being in nature heals us. I think it's good for us. I don't think, I mean, it's, it doesn't heal everything, but I do think it's, it's good for us. And I, especially with what our lives tend to look like and all the stresses and all of the news and all of the inertia. I mean, even as somebody, you know, I, I, I came back from the trail and I did so much writing but I was seated so for like most of 2017 I spent on my couch or in a chair. Um, and I think it's, it's very hard to, I think it's hard sometimes to put your body first, to really treat your body the way that you would um, your mind 
Yeah, I think so too. Man, there's so much good stuff in here. I'm curious about the lead up to your hike. I think so often with things like this, big adventures, you know, anything that takes four or five, six months, people are taking time out of their life. So much of the question is, okay, but realistically and practically, how did you make that happen? So for you, what do you feel like you, I don't even know if sacrifice is the right word, but what sort of changes and choices did you have to make leading up to it in order to make the hike a reality? Yeah. Oh no, that's a fantastic question. Many, number one, I mean, I, so my ex-boyfriend, um, also, uh, was, has his, his own demons and like suffers from anxiety, um, that wasn't really addressed. And so my, my home life wasn't very calm. It was very stressful in 20, 2015. Um, and he was a freelance writer and he, he wrote all the time and he, he was owed a lot of money. I mean, I remember at one point he was owed well over 15 grand by various publishers. Um, and I found myself in this spot where I was the sole person bringing home money on a regular basis, even though it wasn't that much. I never made a lot of money <laughs> despite living in New York. Um, but I, this, this relationship and this house, we live together, um, this housing situation kind of trapped me in this job that I had where I could have applied for so many jobs that looked interesting, um, but I couldn't risk things potentially not going well at that job and being unemployed Mm -hmm. because, and so the short answer is I stayed at a job that destroyed me so that I could save up enough money reliably to go on this hike. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it would have looked like with a partner who'd had a steady income. I don't know what it would have, or roommates or whatever. I don't know what my life would have looked like for, for a year and a half if I'd been able to take on a different job, but I it's very hard to live in New York and not do things, but I pretty much lived in New York and not did things um, for, for many years um, to try to, or for at least a year and a half to try and save up money for all of the gear I didn't have. I didn't have any gear. I had like half a sock, you know? <laughs> I mean, that, that was my experience at the beginning too. I mean, I had no outdoor experience and no gear and it was like so overwhelming to even, where do I start? This is going to be such a huge financial investment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I've spent more time on like lighter pack, you know, than like, which, you know, tracks how much everything weighs so that you can get an idea of like, your base weight and what your total weight will be. I spent so much time researching what's what like spork should I bring? You know, oh, long spoons, man, long spoons are your friends. You know, people never tell you you want a long spoon on a through hike because those Idahoans run deep. Um, you know, like I, I just... I spent so much time sad and broke and, and, and not with my friends, uh, because I couldn't afford to. I, I, I think I had like four shirts that I rotated through because all of my money was going to gear and going to, um, going to this hike, but also what came after this hike. I am very jealous of people who got to go back to their lives and everything was waiting for them. Mm-hmm. I had to, I moved out of New York. Um, at the end of January, my boyfriend and I had broken up and he was going to Minneapolis and I was going to go on this hike, but you know, I didn't only have to save up for this hike. I had to save up for like a move after whatever came next rent. And it's been, I mean, that that was just a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. To figure out how to be gone for that long. And then what's going to happen when you get back my experience. And it's funny because in the two hikes that I've done, I did meet 
a bunch of people when I did the Oregon PCT just because I did it during normal through hiker season. So I met more yeah. people there, but I met basically no one in Arizona. I was like basically yeah. the only one out there. I met two other hikers the whole time. Um, Ugh. and Eight, 800 miles. Yeah. Two hikers. Yeah, two oh through hikers. God. I mean, I saw day hikers a couple of times, but yeah, I met one through hiker on day four and then didn't see him again. And then I met someone else um, or when I had about 300 miles to go and we leapfrogged for a couple of days and then I never saw him again. Like I was alone, alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, but in Mike, the people that I met um, on the PCT, at least, uh, I found that. I was the only one who had like a life that I loved to go home to. And as I started thinking about that, it makes a lot of sense because people usually in order to be able to take that much time off, it's a period of transition, right? Maybe it's after college or it, you know, during a career change or having recently retired or, you know, I didn't really meet anyone else. I think maybe one person that was also in their thirties, but that was really it. And I thought there's like really good things about this because of everything that you just said, that it's of course, unbelievably comforting to know that you have that to come home to. And also I found that what I went through that other people didn't was this sort of intensity of missing this life that I love. Yes. 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 Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of my biggest sacrifices was not seeing my cat for like 10 months. I know. Uh, Not that the hike took 10 (laughs) months, but I, I left my cat with my best friend on February 1st when I, um, when I, left New York, even though my hike didn't start until late March. But I left my cat with my friend on February 1st, and then I moved to California uh, on November 11th. And she took care of my cat the whole time. Um, I, I, I know my, my outside piece is called Going It Alone, but I just want to take a second to, to recognize all of the people who made my hike possible. Because as much as I saved up and as much as I toiled for a year, um, and as much as like financial burdens were one of my biggest concerns, I also had people who, one, took care of my cat for 10 months. Another friend was kind enough to, I whittled my entire life down to 14 boxes and a cat. And my other friend was kind enough to hold on to my 14 boxes um, in his garage while I hiked. I, I had so many people show up for me. Um, and I, I just, I seriously couldn't have done it without them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about that too. That even these, the most solo seeming thing, does not happen alone. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, that's true. So, uh, speaking of your outside piece, um, there is a quote from that. I mean, I loved the whole piece so much. I read it a bunch of times. But uh, in that piece, you're talking about your experience hiking, hiking as a black woman, and you said heading north from Springer Mountain in Georgia, the Appalachian Trail class of 2017 would have to walk 670 miles before reaching the first county that did not vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, and that like. I don't know why I had never thought about it. I, I mean, I just hadn't, but that really struck me. And I would love to hear more about sort of your experiences with I me, mean, maybe not with that specifically, but um, I thought that was a good quote for a jumping off point to have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, it was hard, right? Like 2016 wasn't, I don't think an easy year to hike anywhere, really. Um, the political climate was just so fraught and many people were emboldened. I, I, one of the things about moving to California, at least, well, specifically to the Bay Area, is I see far fewer Confederate flags than I ever did living on the East Coast. Um, and just having these constant reminders of bigotry and intolerance every time I, I entered civilization, I mean, like, it was not good. It was not good for my mental health. There are many great trail towns. I have, I mean, almost every household owner was like, 
pretty wonderful. I didn't feel unsafe in most places. Um, but there was always the threat of, right? And that's exhausting to carry that that fear, to to have to be that vigilant at all times is just takes so much away from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last season I interviewed, I don't know if you know, Danielle Williams, the founder of Melanin Base Camp. Um, oh yeah. 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 And she was bringing up really important questions like, is nature free? Is nature political? Right. And about how often, especially white people are like, I don't understand why we're talking about race or politics when the outdoors are for everyone. Nature is where we go to get away from that kind of stuff. I mean, I hear stuff like that all the time. I'm sure, I'm sure that you do too. And I, I'd love um, your perspective on that. I mean, no, nature isn't free. Nature is free for some, perhaps nature is not free for me. I mean, there's always, there's always a, a mental cost. Um, no matter where I go, I think we can try to, reduce that cost, you know, that tax on, on, on my mental well being. But I don't ever think you can comp- I don't think we're at the point where it's completely gone. And that's not just a nature thing. That's America, right? Like if I don't feel, fr- if I don't feel free moving around America, then how in the hell is nature going to be free? Like I, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's not free for me. And of course, like strictly talking about money, nature is not free. You can, you can definitely get cheap gear and go out and about. Um, but getting places is, is, is cost money. Um, taking care of your food and everything else that you need costs money. I, I know all are welcome is like the tagline and it's so, it's so hard because you do want to encourage right now. I want to encourage everyone listening to this to go outside. Right. But it's hard because it's not as black and white. Right. Like we, we live in the shades of, of gray and those gray realities is like, yes, you should go outside, but also make sure you're doing, make sure you're taking the same precautions you would everywhere else in your life. Um, because there's a certain level of vulnerability and I, I mean, that vulnerability that draws so many people to the woods, um, that, fe- that feeling of being in nature um, and not comfortable is also what keeps people the hell away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I love what you said about encouraging everyone listening to go outside. And also it's like it's that easy and it's not that easy. Yeah. Yeah, it really isn't. And I mean, like, I know we've been focusing on, on race, but like, it's, it's scary. It's scary as a woman. It's scary as a queer person. It's scary. No, it's, it's scary for most people, I think. Yeah. Um, and I also think it's why the outdoors look the way they do and why we have, you know, these like really muscular men like dangling from crags. And like, we have, <laughs> we have these like tough hiker dudes, um, almost all of whom are white. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's two parts. One, it's like, yes, go out there and do what you want, but also keep in mind that being out there looks however the hell you want it to. Yeah. Right. Like you don't have to be, you know, um, standing on a mountaintop to be outdoorsy. All you have to do is be outside and loving what you're doing. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I feel like that's sort of a running theme through everything that we're talking about is like, it doesn't have to be some, extreme thing in order to be worthwhile yes Mm -hmm. yes yes tell me about the books that you brought on your hike oh man so these books ah these books were great i i started i thought to myself what what can i do um i know i'm going to be one of very few black people out here and 
um, for those of you who aren't familiar, I had a black books project where I carried books by um, these black authors and I left them um, at shelters along the way, at trail shelters along the way. Um, and my goal was to create a library of black excellence that spanned the length of the Appalachian Trail. Um, one, just to have people thinking about race at all. Just anyone who walks into a book and sees a black author, probably the only black face that they would see for hundreds of miles. Um, and that's that's not an understatement. Um, and to think about perhaps what the experience might be like um, for that person. Um, but I mean, I had so many people tell me that like they hadn't thought about race or like about how white the trail was until they saw me. And so one of my hopes with the books is that, that it would kind of have a similar effect. But also, I wanted to inspire um, fellow black hikers um, by bringing these books with me and showing them that if these books belong here, then they, they definitely do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hope I did. I hope, I hope it got some people out. Um, I also just wanted to honor many of the authors who struggled with racism. You know, Many of these authors, especially um, the older ones, who fought for my right to be able to do a hike like this without getting lynched, without being raped, without, you know, being harmed. What's something that you got out of the hike that surprised you that you weren't necessarily expecting to come away with? Let me think about that for a second. Um, I've been asked this, uh, I've, I've struggled to, so let me try that again. This isn't the first time I've struggled to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And a part of that is because, all of it seems so small. You know, all of it seems like it's not even worth noting, but when taken all together, it really adds up. I feel like a different person um, since hiking the Appalachian Trail. And unfortunately, I finished my hike three weeks before the election and whatever mental health gains I'd (laughs) I'd gotten were rapidly erased. But I, I definitely am quieter these days. I try to take more pleasure from from the small beauties that I see in the world. Um, I feel more at peace with my failures. Um, I feel like I'm more likely to get up and try again and at and at a faster rate than I would have been in the past. Um, and I hope I'm a little bit kinder and I, I I, I think I was already pretty kind, but I hope I hope I seem I think I feel more nurturing than I did before. Mm, that's also I mean, that's also beautiful and so well said. That idea of being sort of more comfortable with failures and that sort of resiliency of being quicker to get up and try again. I can relate to that so much. I don't even know that I'd ever thought about it until you just said it. And that felt like, you know, the kind of truth where your like arm hairs stand up. <laughs> that's how I felt <laughs> when you just said that. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. super relatable. I mean, another thing is that I mean, okay, so I'm, I'm going to phrase this as cautiously as possible um, because I don't want somebody to be like, you're the reason for my overuse injury. But I think my relationship to pain has shifted um, in that I, when I'm trying something new and I'm struggling, and it doesn't have to be physical, but when I'm trying something new and I'm struggling and it hurts, I know that that isn't an indication to stop. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't mean that like, if your if your foot is hurting, 
you should keep walking for another 20 miles, you know, like, no, please tend to your wounds and tend to your injuries. But I think, I think I see pain as more of like, I think, I think I see pain as less of an anomaly, as less of a like intruder in my life than an indicator that I'm trying to do something amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can relate to that so much. And this could be its whole other conversation of sort of thinking about how, and this is a very privileged thing to say, of course, but how comfortable a lot of our regular lives are. Um, when we yeah. just talk about like having a safe place to sleep, having food to eat, having clean water, you know, that, and that's sort of base level, but even beyond that, that the more comfortable you are, it's, I feel like we're almost sold this idea that any, I don't know, any discomfort is something that, oh, well, if you buy this thing, then you won't be uncomfortable or that it's something to try to get rid of. And yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying of the, that doesn't mean, you know, fight through pain that's telling you, you know, that you need yeah. to stop. For, it's like, but I think the long distance hiking, I felt the same way with running that you get to know your body more, that it becomes not just a binary thing of comfort is good. Any discomfort is bad, that you're able to see the difference between, oh, this is the kind of pain that I actually do need to stop. If we're talking about something physical versus this is something that I'm strong enough to push through. And you start to learn how large the gray area is between complete comfort and excruciating pain. And exactly. yeah, I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd never had that before. And I think it's it's hard to find that in in our society. Um, and I, I'm grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Because it, it goes so as I said, it's for me it's it's so much more than just physical. You know, mm-hmm. like this is something that I now apply to my writing, as you can imagine. Yeah, no, I mean that was for me, it's I'm like, well, okay, I didn't die in Arizona, so probably I can sit down at this blank page and yeah, it comes up a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously, the the uh, a word doc is not like a rattler. Right. You know? like- <laughs> um I so um I find myself feeling really emotional, even if I don't know the person, looking at people's sort of finish line photos from the Uh, hike. And it was, yours was absolutely no exception. And I would love to hear sort of, I guess, the story of maybe the last like 10 or 15 minutes of your hike, because that photo of you at the Northern Terminus holding the Eritrean flag, it's even thinking about it now, it makes me so emotional. And I felt that way before I even knew you. (laughs) It makes me emotional. I mean, listen, I, I was born in America. Um, I'm first generation. My parents were born in Eritrea. My entire family was born in Eritrea. I am, quote unquote, the American. But I have done everything I can to write about Eritreans and to promote awareness of Eritreans who are um, really struggling right now. I mean, it's we've got it's a bad scene back home, and I I know I, I did so much of this hike was for me, but a lot of it was for my grandmother, and a lot of it was for the people who made my life possible. Um, and this journey possible. And a lot of it is for the people who are migrating right now. You know, up until 2016, Eritreans were, like, Eritrea was the number one country of origin for people drowning in the Mediterranean trying to reach Italy. You know, like, my people, under vastly different circumstances, in no way am I comparing myself to these people who are seeking refuge, but so many of my people's lives this past decade has been defined by movement, by a desperation to find freedom using their feet. And I wanted to honor them. Yeah, I feel like that comes through so strongly in just that photo. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. No, it's a good one. It's a good photo. Actually, it was an accidental photo too. Like I was trying to get in position to take the actual photo, but then I saw that photo and I was like, oh, oh, this is the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm always curious how people feel at the end or at the completion of something that's been such a single-minded focus for such a long time. Like A lot of what appeals to me about long distance hiking is the, it, the idea that it's it's not easy, but it is simple. You know, walk from point A to point B, don't die. Of course, there's other stuff along the way, but it's sort of this really clear focus that my day-to-day life doesn't have. And then what happens, of course, there's a sense of pride, but it's like you've been building, 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 and then you get there and you're at the top of that mountain and, you know, those six months are over. How did that feel for you coming down from that? I mean, well, one thing is, you know, going up Katahdin, it's the hardest hike, but going down it is terrifying <laughs> because, you know, it's so funny. You like, you get to the top, you're at the sign and you're like, I did it. I got there. And then you realize that you have to climb down this incredibly steep mountain. And, and it's, it's a lot. It takes so much out of you. I know that's not what you're asking, but I, I I'm bringing this up because that fear, that insecurity, you know, like you'd think it would be gone by the time you get to the top of the mountain. But climbing down Katahdin is just as important as climbing up, or at least it was for me, because it's, it was a reminder that the fear never stops. But that's never a reason. That's also never a reason for you to stop trying. Um, so that was something that I, I hadn't really anticipated being so moved by. Um, but also, like, you know, a thing that I write about often is that the, one of the biggest gifts that the Appalachian Trail gave me was knowing what 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 forward looked like every single day. Every single day, I just followed these blazes, and I knew I'd get a little bit closer to my goal. And life is not like that, you know. Life is not linear. Life is not even two dimensional, and it's it's really hard to go from a two dimensional world to one that's as as vast and multi-layered as ours mm-hmm. um so that was i mean that was just really hard especially as somebody who was undergoing so many transitions i left new york you know i moved to to oakland where i didn't know that many people um i didn't know the city i didn't one of the things about new york um was is that i, I knew how to take care of myself in new york i knew how to bring myself joy in new york even if it was small and moving to a place where i didn't have that made my readjustment to, to normal life all the, all that harder. Um, and so that's, that was something. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I don't, I don't regret anything, you know? I, 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 there's only so much that you can prepare for before your hike. Um, and I know it was fascinating to all the Europeans I hiked with that, most Americans had no plans for after their hike, that they would just kind of figure things out as they went along. I mean, many of the Europeans were just on sabbatical. You know, they had jobs waiting for them when they got back or husbands or wives or whatever. Um, But I don't know. In in some ways, I feel like I don't think I've ever had more faith in myself than not really knowing what my life would look like Mm -hmm. after I got back. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think that just takes a tremendous amount of confidence and willingness um, uh, to, to uh, and a certain willingness to struggle because what you're doing is worth it. Yeah. Do you feel like this through hike was sort of a one and done for you or do you 
have a desire to do something like that again? It's really hard because I think at this point in my life um, and at this point in my writing, in my writing career, I think I don't need to be the symbol that I was on the Appalachian Trail as much as I need to write. So like, I, I think I'm doing more good by writing. I think if I, if I could take to the woods for a month, perhaps I would, I'd really like that. Um, I miss that kind of extended immersion in the outdoors. Um, and I think the more realistic life ahead of me is one where I have more of those and fewer six month excursions Mm -hmm. there. I know from photos that the PCT is spectacular and I, as somebody who loves the outdoors and loves the trail community for the most part and loves hiking, I'm of course tempted to try a through hike of the PCT. Um, from what I've heard, the footbed's much nicer, but almost everything else is much harder <laughs> than the AT. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely miss community. I miss being with people who would immediately open up and just tell you everything about their lives who are so unguarded. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's, you know, it, it, the hike is very rarely just about the hike. And so to, it's, it's hard to answer your question because, I mean, of course, there's like the physical aspect of do I want to be outside and experiencing all of this personal stuff and physical stuff. But I, I mean, for, for me, so much of the hike was was community and was was the friends that I made along the way. Uh-huh. And I miss that. I do. I do miss that. I think that would be more than anything else. That would probably be the thing that gets me to go out. It's um, funny because that's the one thing that I didn't, I haven't had yet because of the nature of, you know, when I did my, when I did the Oregon section of the PCT, I met a lot of people, but they yeah. were, you know, 1700 plus miles into their hike. So I would meet these nice people and then never see them again. Cause they were hiking, right. they were, you know, they were machines and I was dying. Right. right? So yes, yes, it yes. was like, it was, it was strange. I feel like I did two completely polar opposite hikes with that in the Arizona trail that it was, it was almost lonelier being surrounded by people that I couldn't relate to than it was being completely alone. Um, I've heard this from other section hikers. I've, I've heard this from so many other section hikers. Cause it's like, you're in a place and with people, but not of people, right? Yeah. Like you're not one of them. And, you know, I think it's, it's, for, it's interesting when I did that first hike, because essentially I was just looking for something really hard for, you know, reasons that I've talked about in other episodes of the podcast. And it was that it was really hard for sure. And then doing Arizona for me, the main motivation one, I mean, because I didn't think I could do it, but also I was so miserable on my first hike and I had heard such good things from from friends who have done through hikes of all of the reasons that it appealed to them. And I felt like if I could just have a slightly less miserable time or if my skills could improve enough that I wasn't, you know, like as uncomfortable that I would enjoy it more. And so I did Arizona basically to see, does this have a place in my life? And I feel like now going into hiking, you know, for this year, in the future, whatever, that I'm interested in having the experience that I think a lot of other people have both with community, but also with nature. I was so physically uncomfortable and so scared and so out of my element and so new to the outdoors that I felt like I couldn't appreciate all the wonders of spending that kind of time in nature that you get when you're not terrified that something's going to try to eat your face every night, you know? Right, <laughs> like right, right. So I'm hopeful oh, this year man. that I'm like, okay, I've learned my skills are better. My, I'm more experienced that I'm not, I'm not going to be terrified every single second. And maybe I can actually enjoy myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. No, I want to get at the, I mean, like, honestly, I remember the point where I was pissed off at nature. Like, and I was so comfortable with na- nature that I felt 
okay being pissed off at it. And it happened <laughs> in my tent one night when there were like a few whippoorwills, um, which I don't know if those exist on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, they, they, they sound like whippoorwill, whippoorwill. And at first it sounded like it was, you know, a f- way up in the trees. I could barely hear it. And I'm like, okay, bird, it's time for bed. Good night. But, you know, as the night progressed, it just got closer and closer until it was practically standing outside of my tent with a megaphone going, Whippoorwill! And I was like, what is wrong with you, nature? And I remember thinking, you know what? I remember, you know, three months ago or however many months ago that I would have been terrified. I would have been like, this Whippoorwill is out there with like a machete. You know, it's about to like axe murder me. And now now I'm just annoyed at it. And that feels good. Yeah. I remember my last night on the Arizona trail, um, I was basically awake all night. It was a rainstorm and the the rain and wind died down. And I heard the sounds of an animal moving, not right outside my tent, but obviously, you know, close enough by you hear the sticks breaking the pine needles, that kind of thing. And that would have, I would have been absolutely terrified even a couple of weeks prior. And I had that moment where I stopped and I listened and I was like, okay, it doesn't sound that heavy. It's probably a deer. It doesn't sound heavy enough to be a bear. And even the fact that I could bring out that kind of logic, I had this, sometimes like you don't know how much you've grown until you're in that situation where you're like, oh shit, this is not how I would have reacted, you know, however many weeks or months ago or whatever. And so, and that was the last night. So I'm like, oh man, I was only out there for six weeks. So I'm like, what's going to happen, you know, after two months, three months, four months. So I'm very excited. Oh yeah. I I remember when I got comfortable with bees landing on me, (laughs) you're just like, yeah, it's just a bee on my arm. It's just like seven bees. It's not a problem. You'll just go away. And I felt, I remember like standing, the first few times I did that, I didn't really think much of it. But then I remember looking at my arm and it was like, there were three bees just chilling there. And I was having no reaction. My heart rate wasn't elevated. I wasn't panicking. I wasn't swatting at them. And I was like, man, I, that's growth. (laughs) That's, Mm -hmm. um, Cause they were really chill and I did not get stung, but, but I, I want to hear a little bit more about the Arizona Trail, if that's cool. Like, yeah. It's not, not a trail that we hear as much about. Um, it looks really dry. It Can was really dry. Can you tell really a little dry. bit more about your hike? Yeah. Um, and for anyone who's, who's listening, who's interested, I did um, a sort of special edition episode when I got back. It was a QA. and um, Some of the listeners sent in questions. I think there's 10 or 11 questions. And so I, if you want to hear me be real introspective about the Arizona Trail for 90 minutes, I can put a link to that in the show notes. Um, yes, please. But is there anything specific that you want to know about? Um, what, were, what was your, your biggest logistical struggle struggle because I don't know what resupplies look like. Like, I mean, I know you hit roads, I guess, but I mean, how easy is it for you to get into town and get more food? Yeah, it, um, it was easier in some places than others. One of the things that's tough, I mean, the Arizona trail is a national scenic trail, so it's not like you're, you know, going cross country or anything like that. Um, but it doesn't have nearly the amount of resources and trail communities that, you know, let's say the PCT and the AT have. So even when I was putting together my resupply plan, I was so glad that I wound up calling all of the, you know, they tell you call all of the places, check their hours, make sure they accept resupply boxes. Cause I did all mailed resupply. Um, I didn't buy <laughs> stuff along the way. And almost every single place that I called, some part of the information that I had found online was wrong. Either the address was wrong or the hours were wrong or they no longer accepted boxes or, you know, so it was, there was just sort of a lot more of you have to do it yourself instead of all of the resources that exist for the more highly traveled trails. Um, yeah. But that would make such an amazing resource if, if you compiled yeah, this. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I will. I'm in the okay, blog. Good, I'm going to put it on my blog for sure of what I did. And sort of there's some towns that I wouldn't stop in. And, you know, I'll put all of that together. But um, I feel like logistically 
the toughest thing on a day-to-day basis. And some of this has to do with just like my own inexperience, but I was, and I'm still am very uncomfortable with night hiking alone. Um, that's like the apex point of all my fears and everyone that I've talked to that has had a mountain lion encounter, it's always been night hiking. Um, and so I was really resistant to, especially because I was completely alone to doing that. And because of the time of year that I went, I did the the trail southbound in the fall. Most people that do it go northbound in the spring because there's more water then. Um, And so I was dealing with really limited daylight um, that it was, you know, not light out until like 630 a.m. And it was pitch black by 6 p.m. So for me, the trail itself was also really difficult. It was really rocky. Um, I know you're familiar with that from the AT. Um, There was very few parts where it was actually trail. Um, and so it was this constant and there was very little water. So it would often be 20, 25, 30 plus miles between reliable water sources. And, um, so it would be like, okay, I have this limited amount of daylight in order to hike this for me, which was a lot of miles and to be carrying a lot of water rate and to be thirsty the whole time and to be alone. So I felt like the whole time I could never really relax. Like when I did the Oregon PCT, you know, it wasn't, I did it in August. It wasn't dark until, you know, eight something, you know, so I could take an hour and a half lunch break. And I, on the Arizona trail, it was mostly, okay, I would sit down for 20 minutes and set an alarm and be like, okay, this is the longest you can sit here. It was just constant trade-offs of, I really want to take a longer break, but I really want to get to the water source. And I really want to not hike in the dark. So it was this kind of like constant low grade anxiety. Um, can you tell me how your feet fared? Actually really well. Thank God. I had horrible foot problems on my first hike. I mean, just like excruciating pain, blisters, my feet. It was, it was awful. It was the limiting factor of my first hike for sure. And so one of the things that I did in the interim was a lot of experimentation with different kinds of shoes. I wore ultras on my first hike because that's so popular. Um, but it goes to show you what works for a lot of hikers isn't necessarily going to work for you. And, um, I wound up switching to, uh, the new Brooks calderas and, uh, after trying a bunch of different ones and they were fine. I found that 300 miles was the cap though. I um, didn't sort of budget appropriately for how quickly I would go through the shoes. Once I got near and over the 300 mile mark, I would have foot pain. Um, but yeah. if I stayed really within that, cause the tread, the tread is just like, it eats up your shoes. Um, yeah. and I, I was really lucky. I was on my first hike. I was completely wrecked. And part of what through hikers told me was that the most difficult part of section hiking is that you never get beyond the point where your body feels like shit. And, um, that was my experience at the hike. My hike wasn't long enough. My first hike that I ended basically completely broken. And this hike, <sighs> The, uh, you know, I definitely got beyond that to the point where at the, you know, it was 800 miles towards the end. Sure. I was glad to be done, but I could have hiked forever. Like I definitely got to a stronger place, which overall made the hike a lot more enjoyable as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit more about the Oregon section of the PCT? Just because like I, uh, you know, I think hikes like that are, 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 uh, in my future more than like a through hike. Oh yeah, totally. Point. I mean, and it's so, it's honestly so funny talk about growth that I found the Oregon PCT so difficult because you hear often from people who hike the PCT that Oregon's the easiest section and Oregon's where you can make huge miles and Oregon's relatively flat compared to everything else they do. And I had a just like a horrifically hard time for lots of different reasons. And then to go from that to Arizona, like they're so different and I had so little to compare it to that it was, wasn't until I started talking to other hikers who have a ton more experience than me who have done a lot of the longer trails and who have said that Arizona was one of their hardest hikes that I found it to be very validating. So I was like, yeah. what is this? But again, it goes to show you that like the Arizona, the 
I felt like the Oregon PCT is an infant baby joke hike compared to Arizona. And yet I found that so hard. So, um, I mean, I think that, yeah, the Oregon section, it's a great, maybe if you're more prepared than I was a great first hike, it's, it's 460 miles. It goes through, you know, lots of different stuff. Um, and yet it's not, it's, I think more accessible than some of the harder, more remote sections and hikes. Did you feel, um, I know because you are feeling more confident on the Arizona trail, it was a different experience, but I'm wondering what it was like for you hiking in, um, a kind of, kind of a more forested area versus hiking in the desert. Like, did that have different effects on you? Like, did you feel any different? Um, I mean, I was, I live in Oregon, right? So a, right. a lot of my training hikes and stuff had been done there. So I think that I was more used to it. I had no experience at all. I mean, Bend is the high desert, but I had no experience with the kind of desert that Arizona is. So that was completely new for me. I think that, I mean, it's forested. It's a lot easier to find, you know, nice, soft, easy places to camp. You're not in the direct sun as much. Like everything about the Oregon PCT, I feel like is easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I would definitely recommend it for someone who was looking for a hike that was, you know, less than a month. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, perhaps I will. Perhaps I'll, perhaps I'll do that. We can talk about it again. I know, right? Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, clearly you and I are always down to talk about hiking. Um, yes. I know. I feel like we could have like a 19-hour conversation. But the couple other things oh, I wanted to ask you, um, you wrote a piece at the end of 2017 that I loved um, called The Year in Falling Apart. And one Ooh. of the things that you said was, I plan to find my body again in 2018. Can you share what you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said earlier, I spent so much of 2017 really depressed for, you know, mostly for political reasons, a little bit just because, uh, a little bit because of the weather. It was a very wet winter for California. Um, and I felt really trapped inside a lot. Um, there was some post trail depression. There was missing New York and missing my, my friends. A, a, a lot of things came together. And then there was just a ton of writing. So things came together in such a way where I was seated, um, for like the majority of 2017 and nobody tells you how quickly it all goes away. Like, unless you keep moving, you know, it doesn't have to be at the, to the same extreme that you were while hiking, but unless you keep moving, you know, your, your just body starts to, starts to fall apart. Um, and I, I suffered from, uh, I was fine on the trail for the most part, but then about a month after I started to have some pretty serious knee pain, um, where I was hobbling downstairs and I just remember a certain point, I think maybe in February of 2017, where I'm like, man, I threw hiked the Appalachian Trail and I can barely walk down my stairs and like get to the end of my block. And it was really just disheartening, you know? Um, and, you know, inertia kind of begets inertia. So one of my goals for 2018 was is just to, to move more and to make, I think all of this comes back to, are you making time? to take care of yourself, to take care of yourself mentally, to take care of yourself physically, to take care of your needs. And the answer was, I, I wasn't in 2017 and I would like to be in 2018. I recently joined a rock climbing gym. I am now a person who rock climbs or tries to very poorly. I, I am developing some baby blisters. Um, and even if it's, it, it doesn't have to be rock climbing. Like I, I, as I said, I will show up at the gym and just walk at a high incline. Um, on the treadmill for a while or bring my pack and just be on the Stairmaster, even if it's for 15 minutes, just to get that movement um, is key. It's key. To, it makes all the difference um, for my mental health. Um, and it's it definitely helps my body out. Mm -hmm. I want to feel strong. I miss feeling strong. I think it's <sighs> yes. very hard. I think it's very hard 
to, I think it would take more than I'm willing to commit to feel as strong as I did on the AT in my day-to-day life. But that doesn't mean I can't feel strong, you know? Um, and I, I, I hadn't anticipated how empowering feeling that strong would be. And it was, and I want that in my life. And so I'm going to make it. Yeah, I love that. And I can relate to that so much. And again, I think your point of it, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? Like that nothing is going to be able to substitute for walking all day, every day. Like that's a level of strength and fitness at like, it just, you, I mean, you can't, right? Like you can't replicate that. And also it's worth doing something instead of doing nothing. And I have to often, I get, that's like a, I work on this with my therapist, like a cognitive trap of the all or nothing thinking. Right, right, right. And so, you know, a a big thing to figure out is what does sustainable growth look like for you, you know? Um, And I'm, I'm trying to figure that out, but I know that in the, in the course of answering that question, I, stop thinking about what it looked like for me physically. I completely took it for granted. And um, yeah, that that was a mistake. (laughs) Yeah. So um, before we start to wrap up and do a couple rapid fire questions, um, I want to be respectful of your time, but is there anything that hasn't come up in this conversation so far that you really wanted to share or mention? Um, I think there's something that I haven't mentioned is how much pressure is put on hikers of color to kind of be ambassadors um, to, to everyone in the outdoor community. I've gotten so many emails. I think I've responded to half of them just because I don't have the time um, to talk about why I did what I did, how it felt for me. And, you know, on, the, on, the, on one hand, I'm very honored and very happy that people want to talk to me and that people want to grow. But on the other hand, I need to take time for myself and other people's growth shouldn't come at the cost of your own, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so, and so I just want to, um, take a second to shout out some hikers of color, um, and queer hikers and hikers of all body sizes. Um, because I know they're constantly asked to explain their existence and I know it's hard and I appreciate the work that they do. And I just want to recognize that struggle and say, I I feel you. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone in particular um, that you think that people should check out? There are so many people I think people should check out. Man, okay, so shout out to Carrot Quinn, of course, and shout out to Jenny Brusso. Um, Brittany Lovett is one of my favorite people. She's, um, I think, I I forget if she's like, I think Northeast Regional something for Outdoor Afro. Um, Her Instagram is really positive. Um, James Edward Mills, the Adventure Gap is amazing. I love the, um, there are so many Instagram accounts now, I can't even keep track. There's like Native Outdoors, Latino Outdoors, Outdoor Asian is incredible. Fat Girls Hike is amazing. Um, check out Lacey Davis. There, I, I like, I know so many of them came together and now there's like Diversify Outdoors. I think it's .com or .org. I forget which one it is. But it looks like an incredible website where all of these groups have come together and they're going to, I guess, update this website regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty great. A uh, huge shout out to like Elsie Walker slash Chardonnay, um, who, whose blog, uh, Chardonnay walked uh, the PCT in, in 2015. And her blog was the first through hiking blog I found by a black woman. And I found it three weeks before my hike. And I swear to God, I made all the difference in the world just to see that someone who looked like me and who carried the same fears as me could complete a through hike, I think changed the course of my hike. Like it just, 
gave me so much more confidence in myself um, before I even set foot on the trail. And so, I mean, she's an inspiration to me. So yeah, definitely I mean, check out her work. This has come up in, in different contexts, in many different conversations on the podcast, but this sort of like overarching thing of representation matters, right? Like that yeah. if you can't see someone who looks like you or shares your whatever, uh, like personal intersecting identities, that it's like easy to think, oh, this thing is not for me, whatever that thing is. And whether that's true or not true, right? Like that it, it's easy to think, oh, this isn't for me. And then as soon as you see, often it just takes one person to be like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. This is for me. I can do this. Yeah. 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 And you know, there, there are so many, so many people out there. I know the black Alation, black Alachian, depending, you know, where you're from. <laughs> I think he goes by black Alachian. Hiked the AT last year, 2017. And he uploaded, I think hundreds of YouTube videos. I, I think it's as close as many people can get to like seeing what a through hike looks like for a black man, um, in Trump's America. And I mean, like it's, he's did the work and he's, all about positivity. Um, and I, and he had like no hiking experience (laughs) and I, I really, I really think that matters. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think that kind of work matters even when it isn't, even if it hasn't been, you know, fully recognized yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so the way that we end these are with some quick rapid fire questions, uh, basically yeah. people in the Patreon community put forward questions that all eight guests of the season are answering the same seven questions. If you have time to answer some random questions. Yeah, yeah let's do it. All right. If you had a completely free afternoon next week, how would you most love to spend it? Um, hiking. I would, I would definitely be hiking. There's um, a trail nearby called the Stonewall Panoramic Trail and it's, really gradual, tons of eucalyptus. I'm still enamored of this, this tree of California, um, invasive tree of California, tree of California. (laughs) And I would spend it hiking up this really nice trail with a billion switchbacks, which are still novel to me as somebody who hiked the Appalachian trail. Um, and then it gets really steep. And at the top, you can see so much of the Bay. You can see San Francisco, you can see all of Oakland, you can see all the bridges. Um, so that's what I would love to do. I make a great hiking date. So, you know, visit, (laughs) (laughs) that sounds awesome um what feels most important to you this year um serenity (laughs) which which just because it seems the most elusive you know yeah i I don't i don't know how to i never know when i'm gonna have it but what seems what's most important this to me this year is finishing a few big projects and making time for friends in ways that depression doesn't always enable you to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I've let many of my friendships kind of fizzle a little bit more than I, I would like. I mean, obviously you can't be present in everybody's life all the time, but I can reach out more than I have, even if it's just a hello, even if it's just to say, I'm thinking of you, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's just to say, it looks like you might've had a rough day. Um, I want to do that. I want to do that. Even if it's, even if it's with people who aren't very, very close friends. Because I, I, I think these small gestures matter so much, especially when people are struggling. So yeah, yeah. I agree with that. So you just mentioned um, a local trail that you love, but uh, what's another place in your town that you would really recommend people check out if they ever travel there? Do you have a favorite coffee shop, restaurant, bookstore, anything like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a great shop near my apartment called Scarlet City uh, Espresso. And they make some of the best coffee in the East Bay. I they're also it's run by um, these two lesbians, and they're very queer positive. Um, 
again, their coffee is out of this world. It's a sci-fi themed coffee shop. They've got pinball machines. They're like, there's sci-fi, you know, stuff everywhere. (laughs) Um, And it's like a really lovely opening, open, welcoming space where I've met so many members of my local community and made really great friends. Um, You're like bound to meet someone cool there. So I highly suggest checking out this coffee shop if you're ever um, in Oakland. Uh, And I, I think I'm trying to think of another trail I really like because there are so many around here, right? Like you can go to, to the Marin Headlands. Um, but I would say check out uh, check out the Albany Bulb. Like it's it's a really interesting little little slice. Um, it used to be a dump, I believe, and there used to be a massive homeless encampment. But of course, the bay being the bay, cleared out all the homeless people, um, and now it's kind of a park with all this graffiti and stuff. What's something that's working really well in your life right now that feels like it's easy and vibrant and flowing? My cat. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. No, seriously. It killed me to be, I cried about my cat so many times on the trail because I missed her so much. I do not have children. Um, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, I I really, I, it would really be hard for me to go on another through because I just don't want to leave her for, another six months of my life and of her life. Her life is nowhere near as long as my life. So mm-hmm. I know I um, feel that way too. I'm like, look at their it, tiny cat faces. How do I leave them? I know. I know. Um, and I guess the answer is get really, really ripped so that it only takes four months instead of six months. I mean, that's well, I mean, the, the again, yeah. I mean, doing the PCT Southbound, you don't have six months weatherwise. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, there's that. Uh, what's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in life? Oh, is that a rapid fire question? Yeah. That's a rapid fire question. Um, a path, uh, I, I don't. I mean, oh, you mentioned it a little bit in terms of switching to writing. Like, if there's a point yeah. where if you look back, of okay, if I would have made a left here instead of a right, it probably would have changed a lot of things. You know what? Funny enough, that answer is hiking the Appalachian Trail. Okay. If I hadn't made the goal of hiking the Appalachian Trail, I think I could have really developed my career as a writer. I think I could have gotten a staff job somewhere. I think I would be far more established in my writing career and in the opportunities that were present in 2014 and in 2015 that are no longer present. Um, and I'm talking about the number of, I mean, I don't know how, how much your readers follow media, but journalism jobs are just so, so uh, just, uh, they're like unicorns, you know, like full-time staff jobs are very hard to come by. Um, and especially for, for people of color and especially for women of color who on top of that don't get paid as well as their white male counterparts. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right now I, I, I feel like if I, if I hadn't, pers- if I hadn't hiked the Appalachian trail, I might be a more successful writer or further along in my career, or I would have um, steady income because right now I'm a full-time, I'm a full-time freelancer. Um, that said, I might also be dead. Like I, the app, I, I 100% believe that the Appalachian Trail saved my life um, and that it was exactly what I needed. Mm, that's such an honest answer. The next question is about books, which I don't know, two or three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say I've either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Oh man. Well, this, you know, this past year I've recommended, um, Octavia Butler's parable of the sower a lot because it's, uh, it, 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 her, this, this book mirrors our current situ- situation, um, political situation in America, um, highly. And there's a lot about climate change and political struggles. 
Um, and it's one of my favorite sci-fi novels. Uh, I really, really love The Sun is Also a Star, which is a, technically a YA novel. I mean, there are these teens, I think they're 17 or something like that. But it's by an author named Nicola Yoon. And she was the author of Everything, Everything, which um, became a movie. I don't know if The Sun is Also a Star is being adapted. But I, I mean, like, the first, within the first three pages, I was in tears. And it's just such beautiful writing. Um, and it's about these teens who fall in love the day before this girl is supposed to be deported with her family. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you're the second person to recommend that book, too. So, okay. Am yeah. I? Yeah, to me, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I guess that means it's time to read it. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> okay. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Okay. Um, yes. One, uh, I would say that you matter and that it's really hard to remember that sometimes um, and that it's very easy for um, us to forget to take care of ourselves. And I think if there is a small call to action I, I would give your, your listeners, it would be to try to listen to your body and to try to listen to your mind. And if you find yourself overwhelmed because life is overwhelming, um, to nonetheless take just a little bit of time, even if it's just going for a walk around your neighborhood, um, but just to take a little bit of time just for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also say that if, if you have a big goal, ask yourself what a smaller version of that goal would look like and ask yourself what an even smaller version of that goal would look like until it's something that you can actually comfortably do. Because by doing so, you've created a, a path to achieving that big goal. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, if you can follow my Instagram or you can follow my Twitter. My Twitter is far more um, politically active and um, kind of all over the place and not as much about hiking. Um, my Instagram is mostly outdoor stuff, my cat. Those two, that pretty much that's it. Sometimes I eat. Sometimes I eat a donut. Like my Instagram, my cat. Sometimes I eat. I mean, a donut. that's that. That sounds amazing. That um, sounds also like my life. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, I, I suggest my Instagram and my Twitter. Both of them, it's the same handle at Rahawa Hale. Awesome. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Rahawa, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. It was a pleasure talking with you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the awesome Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now and has been for a while a 100% listener-supported, listener-funded show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Lexi. Hi, Lexi. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer some random questions? I am so ready. My favorite question to kick us off, um, what are you totally obsessed with right now? All right, awesome. I knew you were going to ask this, and I was like, I have to have the perfect answer. (laughs) So um, right now, I am totally obsessed with what I like to call... A mm, chipotle adobo cashew cream. So basically, it's cashew cream mixed with this these chipotle peppers that are in. They're like kind of marinated in adobo sauce, and so I put the peppers in the sauce in there, and it's seriously the best thing. I put it on everything. I put it on sandwiches, on tacos, 
earlier today, I put it on quinoa and beans. It is fantastic. We have probably, I don't know, like three or four squeeze bottles of them in our fridge. That's amazing. Um, I didn't realize like the true glory of cashews until I became vegan. I was just like, hang on, you can like soak them and make every creamy dessert, every creamy sauce. Like what even is the glorious magic of cashews? I don't know. And see, okay, I've been vegan for six years now and I've had cashew cream in the past, you know, at a restaurant and, you know, I've made it at home, but I don't really know why we never really made it often. I think as cashews are kind of expensive. So we were always kind of like, nah, like we don't need to do this, but we made it fairly recently for something for the tacos. We were trying to imitate these tacos at this restaurant we love. And we were like, holy shit, why haven't we been doing this? Like we have made an error in judgment. Like, so now we're always making cashew cream. It's the best thing. It waited six years to realize the glory of it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, the cheapest that I have found them at least near me is, um, at Trader Joe's actually, surprisingly. I need to shop at Trader Joe's more. The Trader Joe's where I live is such a cluster. Like it's in a cluster parking lot and the store is a cluster. So I avoid it. <laughs> well, the raw cashew pieces are cheaper there than any store that I found. So it depends how into your cashew game you get. It might be worth the, the clusterfuck situation. <laughs> it really might be. <laughs> um, okay, good. You report back on that. Um, <laughs> what's one thing that you feel like you've been seriously kicking ass at so far this year? Oh my God. Wow. Um, that's such a cool question. Um, you know what? I feel like I've been kicking ass at keeping one of my many 2018 intentions, which is to spend more, um, intentional, meaningful time with my friends. So basically making more plans to hang out, whether that be at home or to go out somewhere, um, and to do that regularly. And I've really kept with that, which I mean, it's only today's February 2nd, so it's been just a little over a month and it doesn't seem like that's enough time to, to do that, but I have. I mean, I've been busy and it's it's been really awesome. That's so good to hear. Um, yeah. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Oh my God, this is an amazing question. Tofu scramble. Oh, I love tofu scramble. I am seriously so obsessed with it. Um, I never get sick of it. Like I have it every, well, it was like a weekend thing. Like, okay, every Saturday morning, like I'm making a big tofu scramble, but now it's to a point where I have it multiple times during the week and then... I wrap it in a tortilla, so it's yeah. like a breakfast burrito. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. that's real. That's, yeah. I feel like you yes. and I could do some delicious eating together. We clearly like the oh same thing. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> um, who do you need to write a thank you note to this week? Like if you could give a gratitude shout out to someone this week, who would it be? Ooh, I've been meaning to do this. Um, her, It's a woman named Sarah. She is a manager at a local microbrewery in my neighborhood. Um, I think it was a week ago, like last Saturday, I went to this bar for a friend's birthday. It was like a bar crawl thing. And I was intoxicated. (laughs) I was like, hey, you and this other woman look extremely comfortable. That's really cool. This seems like a chill place to work. Are you hiring? It was kind of a joke, but I was kind of serious because I was like, I know I'm leaving my job. And she was like, yeah, let me get you an application. And I was like, oh, okay. So she came back. And we ended up chatting for probably like 15, 20 minutes, just about like my work situation and then about life and all this stuff. And she was like one of the coolest people ever. And I was like, Sarah, be real with me. Is this one of those situations where, you know, you're bartending and you're talking to this poor soul and then, you know, you're just being nice because that's like what you're supposed to do. And she was like, no, I think it'd be a great addition to the team and all this stuff. And I was like, holy crap, I want to be a bartender now. She was like, well, I'd start you on serving. And I'm like, ooh. No, like I, I don't want to be a server. I never wanted to. I didn't say that, 
but I was really considering it because I was like, ooh, you know, I could, this is an opportunity to make money. But then the next day I was like, no, I'm not doing this. So I need to send her a letter just for being so kind, so thoughtful, so just just being an awesome person. I, I need to do it. that. There you go. You have a homework yeah. assignment. I do. Um, <laughs> the last question, what's the one thing that you've recently been wishing people were more open and honest about? Ooh, okay. This is a good question. Um, open and honest about... Hmm. Well, okay. I want to, I want to say in general, like the inner workings of their lives, but that's way too broad. So I'm, this is such a cliche. Everybody says it, but I'm going to say it too. I'm going to say money. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not a cliche. It's like, or if it is, it is for a reason. (laughs) It is for a reason. I really think that would be a good one. People are way too weird about it. So money. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, so you're a member of our Patreon community, Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share two things. One, why you decided to support the show and two, what you've liked most about either being in the community or any of the particular bonuses or anything like that. All righty. Well, I did tell you the story, so I'm sorry. I have to tell you again (laughs) and tell the world. Um, But I decided to support the show because I absolutely had to. Um, Your podcast, and I'm not just saying this, has seriously, dramatically, positively impacted my life and changed it in a number of ways. Um, I started listening to it a few months ago and um, just... Just kind of like, I don't know, I was I was trying to learn more about someone, um, Dana Schultz of Minimalist Baker, and I, I knew that she had been on your podcast. I was like, oh, I want to learn more about her. Let me listen. Um, and I listened to that episode. It was fantastic. Um, but that was also like at a particularly kind of like low point or rough time I was going through. And so all the titles of your episodes spoke to me. So I started listening to episodes and every single episode was absolutely incredible. I took something away from every person, from every, every episode. Um, all these people are just so intelligent and passionate and encouraging and just insightful. Um, and it just, I don't know, like it gave me an opportunity to self-reflect in a lot of ways, to learn more about myself, to learn about the world. Um, and it just, it, 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 I don't know, it, it's fantastic. And there was like one particular moment that I still really think it's, it still really is important to me. Um, I was on my way to work kind of having like a panic attack. I was freaking out because I really hated my job and I was so stressed out. And I was listening to the episode with Julia Hanlon, your 100th one. And she was like, you know, I was, I was, you know, having a rough time last year with my mental health. So I decided to go home for two months and kind of go on retreat and turn inwards and basically take care of herself. And she said, I really don't think people do that enough. They don't give themselves that gift enough when they're hurting or suffering. And I was like, you know what? Damn it. People don't. And it's because like you can't in this culture but whatever, I'm going to do it. So I got to work, got to the parking lot, turned around and went home. And this was on a Tuesday and I took the rest of the week off and it was awesome. During that week, I was spent time in nature. I self-reflected, I journaled and the whole time I listened to your podcast and it was like the best therapy. So how can I not support the podcast? It changes lives. It needs to change everybody else's life. <laughs> You're so, that story. I mean, the first time that you told me that story, I was like very moved by it and very grateful. And also I agree, Julia Hanlon's the best. So shout out to Julia. She's- yeah, she's awesome. Love her. Um, yeah, so in the past couple months, um, what's been your favorite thing, I guess, oh that we've God. done? 
Definitely the Google Hangout. That was so cool. <laughs> that was so fun. Yeah. So for people that are listening, basically the way that the Patreon sort of works, there's like different funding levels. Um, there's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level right now. And um, so Google, small Google Hangouts, uh, a couple weeks after the release of each season is something that we do in the $25 level. And we had ours, what, like two weeks ago or something. And it was so fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was so fun. And it's just such a cool thing to do. I mean, to connect with people. Um, you know, all over the world and just to connect with people really that are part of this same community. And it's awesome to, you know, to do that online, like with messages, it's, it's fantastic, but to actually like see someone and physically talk to them about anything and everything. It was just very, very special. Yeah. I'm glad you feel that way. I, it's like basically the substitute for being able to do live events everywhere. It's like the next best yeah. thing. And it's like pretty cool that even on our call, it was like three people from totally different places, you know? And yeah, yeah cool. Awesome. So um, cool. so to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe you could even come and do one of these outros with me. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can and no matter what, we're in this together. 